I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. Okay, listeners, soon it's no more pencils, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks. School's almost out, at least as far as this podcast is concerned. We're at the final episode. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. The Secret History brings much attention to Bennington when it comes out in 1992. Two years later, in 1994, Bennington will again be in the news. This time because of what is known among Benningtonites as The Purge. From the October 23, 1994 New York Times article, Bennington Means Business. Quote, The college is trying to solve its overwhelming financial problems. Over the last five years, Bennington's enrollment has been dropping steadily. The solution, devised in large part by Bennington's president since 1987, Elizabeth Coleman. Quote, A third of the school's faculty members, many of them tenured, received registered letters informing them, in taught legal language, that their services were no longer called for. One of the teachers forced out, Maura Spiegel. I mean, we were very excited by the fact that, you know, our our graduates were making their way in the world and, you know, and bringing glory to, and writing about Bennington, you know, was all part of the mix. So how shocking that it was to us that this was the moment of attack the literature division was decimated. They really didn't give a damn about what was coming out of the division and what the faculty was, you know, nurturing. They really didn't care. Another one of the teachers forced out, Claude Fredericks. And for reasons that have nothing to do with money. Here's Todd O'Neill, the basis for The Secret History's Henry Winter. The story as told does not harmonize with Claude that I knew he would not have behaved in the way that he was accused of behaving. That he would have tried to seduce a student, maybe, but that he would have been in any way coercive, no. But obviously it was manipulated as a way to stain his reputation and give them an excuse to fire him. Bennington had never cared about that and all of a sudden they cared about that. In Todd's opinion, Donna is partly to blame for Claude's demise. After all, in her novel, she portrays the Claude-like character, classics teacher Julian Morrow, as a ruinous influence on young psyches. Todd. Donna's book was Elizabeth Coleman's unwitting accomplice because it sowed the seed that there might be something insidious in what he was doing with students. There was a sense that Claude was maybe, uh, how shall I say it, that he was not a, a cult leader, but that he had these strange magnetic influences over young men. Julian, he leads those children astray into, uh, into evil. Is it the secret history that brings Claude down, though? Or is it the Times? Claude had an enormous following among the faculty and among students, both present and past. And he would have easily beaten Elizabeth Coleman if she hadn't been able to create a scandal around him. Now, I don't know whether the thing was made up out of whole cloth or whether this student came and said, I think Claude is trying to seduce me or something. If so, normally in the old days, they would have, you know, said, well, go back and tell him, leave you alone or something. But we aren't in the old days anymore. 
and behavior that was once indulged no longer is. And yet that behavior, bad behavior, impermissible behavior by today's reckoning, is in many ways what defines Bennington, or rather what defines the Bennington of our particular era. Which is why I considered 1994, not 1986, as the year Bennington ended for Brett, Donna, and Jonathan. Jonathan and I discuss. Bennington was a last preserve of an old, decadent culture that fascinated and appalled everyone. What had been quietly and carefully, you know, distilled out of other atmospheres, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. and probably had never been so pervasive in very many places as it was pervasive at Bennington, was just, had not been confronted. That's why that purge came along and it was such a like convulsive thing because, you know, it's like Bennington ran out the string on that. <laughs> and Jonathan offers another way of looking at Elizabeth Coleman. She was controversial because she seemed to so many people to represent a stamping out of the special spirit of the play. Now, of course, she was probably putting out a fire. God knows how many lawsuits were being negotiated in the background. And and the place might have been on the brink of not existing for a while there. So you could cast her presidency in one of two lights. And I think I often hear people cast it in a kind of, well, you know, she came to take its soul away. It might be that actually it was triage. We know how Donna feels about The Purge and Elizabeth Coleman because on November 13th, 1994, her letter to the editor is published in the New York Times. Quote, Though Elizabeth Coleman seems to feel that Bennington had been plunged into some sort of intellectual dark age before it was graced with her arrival, it was an electric and magical place during my years there. As a novelist, I learned my craft in large part from the literary academics. Morris Spiegel, Claude Fredericks, whom she has seen fit to dismiss. It is tragic to witness how Coleman's ignorant tinkering has destroyed this rare and delicate environment. But Matt Jacobson, the basis for The Secret History's Bunny Corcoran, feels quite differently. And these are not new feelings either. Matt was having them while he was a student at Bennington. He started to drift away from Claude right around the time he met his girlfriend, now wife, Liz Glotzer in Claude's Dante class. You know, I felt the pull of Liz and realized it was kind of ridiculous to hang out with Claude, cool as he was. We weren't unfriendly. We just never found time for each other anymore, which made perfect sense to me because he wasn't going to get what he wanted from me. So he had to move on to greener pastures. At the end of the day, Claude Fredericks was driven by, um, you know, a perverse you know, interest in me. And yeah. that was wrong. And as I, and here I am, yeah. I'm, I'm a geezer now, and I realize how out of line he really was. Though even Matt is not without his twinges of ambivalence. But I learned so much from him at the same time. That, that was what was attractive, that, that he, would, he had all this knowledge and he was you know, willing to blather on in front of you. And Jonathan is straight-up ambivalent. I felt that something very precious and remarkable was being kind of destroyed. And, of course, I felt that justice was being meted down on all sorts of people who had been getting away with unbelievable assumptions of privilege and, you know, who'd been manipulating people in the, under the guise of, of mentoring them for, for a long time. So as I was just as mixed up about that as I was about all the rest of it. 1994 is an eventful year for our Bennington crew, and not just because of the purge. 1994 is the year Brett comes out with, to date, his only short story collection, The Informers. Brett, ever direct... Uh, I did a collection of short stories to fulfill a publishing contract. To keep from getting sued, basically. Brett owes Knopf a new novel, but it's slow going. He explains his difficulty moving on from American Psycho to talk show host Charlie Rose. The events surrounding the publication of that book were so surreal, they were hard to take literally. Your publisher decides to cancel a book. Well, that's strange enough. Then the National Organization of Women decides to protest the publication of the book. Well, okay, by the time the death threats come, I mean, it's, you know, it's, you're in a surreal world that you never thought you'd be in. What happened eventually was I thought it really wasn't going to distract me from my work. I really thought it wasn't going to bother me that much. I was in the middle of another novel when uh, the uh, controversy, you know, burst forth. And ultimately it did. It did distract. 
uh, from my writing a lot. And I found myself not writing for a long time. And with the informers, Brett didn't have to write because he'd already written. The Informers is the thesis he wrote under Morris Spiegel his senior year at Bennington. Yes, changed, but not changed much. As Spy Magazine gleefully points out in a piece called The Rules of Regurgitation, somehow the publication finagles a copy of Brett's thesis and does a side-by-side. The story titled The Up Escalator in The Informers is titled Laura in his thesis. And the big difference between the two is that the apartment belongs to a Martin rather than a Michael. The story titled Another Gray Area in The Informers is titled In Transit in his thesis. And the big difference between the two is that a character sings Dance With Me instead of Our Lips Are Sealed, and so on. Here's co-founder of Spy Magazine and longtime editor of Vanity Fair Magazine, Graydon Carter, on why Brett and his Brat Pack Buds make such irresistible targets. Well, the fact is it's rare that you get a, a group of writers that come along that can be categorized with a catchy title, you know, like The Lost Generation or The Brat Pack. They're all sort of very young, good-looking, and knew each other. And that that's good for copy. And if Spies served a purpose, it was to uh, bring large balloons back to Earth a bit. 1994 is also the year Reginald Reggie Shepard a close friend of both Jonathan's and Donna's, publishes his first book of poetry, The Warmly Received, Some Are Drowning. And 1994 is the year Brick Smith, who is Vanden in Lesson Zero, in The Rules of Attraction and American Psycho as well, and who is no longer with singer-songwriter Marky Smith or Mark's post-punk band The Fall, joins the alternative band Hole, fronted by Courtney Love, herself very nearly a member of the class of 86 as we found out from her recent Instagram posts. Here's Bricks. Basically, right around that time, a whole bunch of shit had happened. I'd lost everything, moved back to America, was like living in a garage, working as a waitress. But very slowly, Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles asked me to come and play with her. And then Courtney Love asked me. According to the New York Times, Marky Smith then asks Bricks to come back to the fall. She leaves whole after a single day. And finally, 1994 is the year Jonathan Lethem publishes his first book, Gun with Occasional Music, a blend of two types of genre novel, science fiction and hard-boiled detective. It doesn't get him on Good Morning America or in Vanity Fair, but it does get him on a serious role. He'll publish three novels in four years, Amnesia Moon, As She Climbed Across the Table, and Girl in Landscape, all genre, all science fiction in fact, yet all experimentalist. In 1997, Newsweek will proclaim him one of its 100 people to watch in the next century. He's a spot ahead of a young actress and ex-fly girl named Jennifer Lopez. Still, it is, for the most part, an under-the-radar career. And deliberately so. To work in sci-fi, even if he's working within and without sci-fi, is to work on the cultural margins. Over email, Jonathan said this to me. Quote, When I dropped out of Bennington, I told myself I was leaving to finish my novel publish in shabby paperbacks like my hero, Philip K. Dick, and then get discovered at 50 and be vindicated. He's on track to do just that. It's in 1996 that Jonathan moves back to Brooklyn. Now, among Jonathan's papers at the Beinecke Library at Yale University is a list, five pages long, of guests at a Christmas party. Brett's Christmas party, an annual event. The list, from 1998, as best I can determine, was left on a stool by one of the party's bouncers. And Jonathan, who, with actor Ethan Hawke, closed out the party, boosted it as he strolled through the door into the night. The names on it range from movie star Uma Thurman, Ethan's wife, to hotelier Andre Balaz, Uma's future fiancé, to the entire Didion Dunn clan, Joan, John, and Quintana, plus John's brother Dominic Dunn and nephew Griffin Dunn, father and brother of Dominique Dunn, the young actress who was murdered by her sous-chef boyfriend, Brett's freshman year at Bennington, to the writer of Sex and the City, the book, Candace Bushnell, along with the real Mr. Big, Vogue publisher Ron Galati, to the creator of Sex and the City, the television show, Darren Starr, who also created Beverly Hills 90210, which is, you could argue, the sanitized-for-TV version of Less Than Zero. 
When I emailed editor Jerry Howard a screenshot of the page of the list on which his name appears, he emailed back, quote, Wow, it's sort of like making it into the Goncourt journals. And it is. The list an emblem of an age and a scene. Rich, bohemian, cafe society, pre-millennium New York, in all its louche splendor. It is, as well, a QED of the power of Brett's celebrity, and of that celebrity to attract more celebrity. Jonathan isn't yet a celebrity, nor is he a close friend, which is why he's not on the list. His old girlfriend and Bennington famous person, Maddie Horseman, though, is. I went to Brett's party. I always, I really wanted to make my guest count. And I knew that Jonathan really, he just wanted part of the, that publishing world. So I brought Jonathan as my plus one. And the next year, I was not invited, but Jonathan was. The reason Jonathan at last rates an invite? Mother was Brooklyn. Published in 1999, Mother was Brooklyn is a noir about an orphan detective with a wicked case of Tourette's. It's also a dazzlingly inventive, vividly sustained riff on parents, children, grief, guilt, loss, memory, and language itself. Think the comic strip Dick Tracy, only written by a joy scholar hooked on amphetamines. It turns upside down Jonathan's plan to stay a cult figure until midlife. It also wins the National Book Critics Circle Award. Here's writer David Lipsky on the various literary prizes. The way it's always been seen is that the Pulitzer represents what the time is thinking about. Like if you had a thought bubble over the calendar in a wonderful way, the Pulitzer represents that. And then the National Book Award is just, I think, three or four writers, they form a panel and they duke it out. It's like, here is what writers think. National Book Critics Circle Award is the critics, the National Book Critics, and they say, we read all of them. Here's the book itself that we thought was the best. Translation, Jonathan's literary fame is of a different order than Brett's and Donna's. Now, Brett is obviously disreputable, a major American writer who hasn't won a major American award. So, though, to a lesser extent, is Donna. While Mashiku Kakutani and the New York Times love the secret history, the higher tone rags, like the Paris Review and the London Review of Books, turned up their noses at it. Jonathan, contrastingly, is embraced by the critical establishment. That's what the NBCC award is, a great big soul kiss from the critics. So Mother Was Brooklyn is a mainstream crossover because of its brilliance and flash, but also because of its title. Again, David Lipsky. So like Lethem gets to Bennington and it is a lot of rich kids who make him feel bad for coming from a part of Brooklyn that's the right part of Brooklyn now, but was the wrong part of Brooklyn then. In fact, in a certain way, being from Brooklyn at all then was being from the wrong part of Brooklyn. And then, all at once, there's no such thing as the wrong part of Brooklyn. Like, do you think if it were called not motherless Brooklyn, but the stuttering detective or the Tourette's detective that would have gone over, it was him hearing that Brooklyn, his borough, suddenly was becoming the cooler of the two sibling boroughs in this, you know, tri-state area part of the world. He heard it, and so he was smart enough to title it that. Like, it's ingenious. Hey, Mama, we see you. All the visible and invisible work you do for others and yourself. That's why this Mother's Day, the Meditation for Women podcast has a special free guided meditation just for you. Stay to listen to hundreds of guided meditations available for you. Some to help you sleep, start your day, release anxiety, and tune into your intuition. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
Mother with Brooklyn makes its splash a year after Brett's long-awaited follow-up to American Psycho, Glamorama, sinks like a stone. Glamorama features Victor Ward, formerly Victor Johnson, a bit player in the rules of attraction, given a star turn here. What or whom, one wonders, did Victor have to do in order to secure his big break? Well, if any writer would subject his fictional creations to a casting couch, it'd be Brad. When we first encounter Victor, a male model and it boy and soon-to-be international terrorist, he's shilling for a nightclub on the eve of his celebrity-packed opening. The premise sounds self-aware and astutely ironic, and for a while, so is the book. But at a certain point, Brett loses control. There's something unbalanced about Glamorama, out of whack. Writer Brad Gooch. All those names in like Glamorama, it's like a gossip column having a nightmare or something. A cast of thousands, almost all of them bold-faced names, including Victor Ward, whose bold face blots out his actual face by the book's end, in which an individual who is not Victor Ward is calling himself Victor Ward and living Victor Ward's life. And the real Victor Ward is very probably dead. Something similar is happening to Brett. His persona got away from him sometime around the publication of American Psycho. And now Brett Easton Ellis, the persona, is threatening to swallow whole Brett Ellis, the person. The Glamorama book tour takes Brett to Ann Arbor, where Brett's former Bennington teacher, Nick Del Banco, now director of the MFA program at the University of Michigan, resides. Nick joins Brett at his hotel for a drink and then walks him to his reading. When we came out of the hotel, this vast person with a pistol showed up and uh, not so much as blocked our way as, as, as paved our, our way. It was a maybe two or three block walk to Borders Books. And I said, Brett, what the hell is going on? And he said, I have a contractual clause that says when I go out in public, I have a bodyguard with me. And I said, listen, Brett, you know, you're in a college town. They're going to be, you know, a bunch of students who are avid to see, not to kill you. And he said, yeah, but it's in the contract. We got to Borders and there was indeed a stranger or two sitting in the back row, but there were old people taking a nap and waiting for the coffee to be poured. <laughs> On the one hand, a guy in Brett's position can't be too paranoid. On the other hand, though, this is no way to live. Jonathan, who enters into an edgy, semi-friendship with Brett in the late 90s, understands the predicament Brett's in. He reads from his nonfiction piece, Zelig of Notoriety. I think of him as a child star, in the King Tut or Bob Dylan sense, of being locked into a public identity before it could possibly have formed a resilient interior life. Jonathan also understands how Brett is going to unlock himself from that public identity by... Writing into the teeth of it. Brett will do as Jonathan suggests with his next offering, Lunar Park, the work in which he figures out how to have a second, and to me more interesting career, as a spent cultural force. What he's been since the publication of American Psycho... Lunar Park is a novel in the form of a memoir about Brett Easton Ellis. Or rather, Brett Easton Ellis in quotes. Brett Easton Ellis in quotes is a celebrity writer blocked on his new book, Teenage Pussy. This, an excerpt from Lunar Park. Quote, the original title of Teenage Pussy had been Holy Shit. But Knopf, who had shelled out close to a million dollars for the North American rights alone, assured me that Teenage Pussy was the more commercial title. Knopf was going to call it a pornographic thriller in their catalog, which excited me immensely. Lunar Park is, obviously, self-parody, Brett spoofing his career and oeuvre and persona. But Lunar Park is, too, a remake of American Psycho that is also an unmake. In it, Brett Easton Ellis, the character, is being haunted by a monster created by Brett Easton Ellis, the writer. Patrick Bateman, based, as we'll learn over the course of the narrative, and as I already told you in episode 12, on the monster who created Brett Easton Ellis, his father, Bob Ellis. So in 2005, the year of Lunar Park's publication, Brett hasn't yet coined the term empire, which is, quick refresher, America after World War II, when it reigns supreme and movie stars are movie stars, and having a polished persona is the plan and the goal. And post-empire, which is, another quick refresher, 
America after 9-11, when its dominance looks shaky and reality TV stars trump movie stars, and taking off the mask of your public persona seems a whole lot cooler than putting it on. Brett will coin Empire and Post-Empire in 2011 in his piece on actor and wild man Charlie Sheen. Nevertheless, Lunar Park is a quintessentially post-Empire work. With it, Brett is blowing to smithereens American Psycho, his Empire masterpiece, then constructing out of the shards a new novel, his post-Empire masterpiece. And yet, the critics don't seem to notice or care that he's done something daring and original. Lunar Park is treated, for the most part, as just another squawk for attention from that brat Brett. Faring much better with critics, Jonathan, who'd published the year prior, in 2004, Fortress of Solitude. Fortress traces the decades-long friendship of two Brooklyn kids, Dylan Ebdis and Mingus Rude. Dylan, white, the son of an artist, Mingus, black, the son of a singer, both without a mother, both obsessed with comic books. While Fortress contains elements of magic realism, mostly it's social realism and autobiography, emotionally if not always factually, though sometimes factually. Jonathan, for example, gives Dylan his birthday as well as his childhood street address. Brett talks to me about his reaction, not just to Fortress, but to Jonathan's writing career in general. This surprise um, galley came to me called uh, Talking Animals. They're all like in a detent noir. The first book? Yeah. And I thought, Jonathan Leitham, the writer? The title of the book Brett's straining to remember is Gun with Occasional Music. And Brett did know Jonathan was a writer. Here's how I know he knew. The same way you know he knew, listeners. Because Jonathan is, as we discussed in episode 10, a minor character in the Rules of Attraction. The, quote, obnoxious poet who used to be cute before he shaved his head. So, okay, maybe Brett didn't know Jonathan wanted to write novels, but he did know Jonathan wanted to write. Brett, having got in his obligatory dickish remarks, is now prepared to be generous, even rapturous. I read the book, but I don't think I gave it a blurb. And then one came after another. And then I kept up with all the other books. I read all the books that came out. And I think uh, Force of the Solitude was, what, 2003? I wrote a very long email about that book, a very honest email, because the first time I picked it up, I couldn't get into it. And I was trying to read too much of it at first. And so I kind of slowed my reading down. I started over, gave myself five pages here, 10 pages Mm -hmm. here. And then I really got swept up in it. I do think it's one of the great books of my generation. I really do. There just seemed to be a freedom. I don't know. It seemed more expansive. It wasn't concerned with genre. It didn't seem academic. I think what he achieved in that was wondrous. Brett rushed his words a bit there, and I don't want you to miss them. He declared Fortress one of the, quote, great books of his generation. And it costs him something to say that because Jonathan, with Fortress, has effectively overthrown him. Jonathan is part of the new school of writers, the school replacing Brett and his cohorts at the top of the literary shit heap. And not a minute too soon, and good riddance to bad rubbish is the general feeling among the intelligentsia. Jonathan from Zelig. By the time I crawled out of obscurity, I'd find myself congratulated for being part of a generation of writers who'd helped put a corruptly oversold brat pack safely in the rearview mirror. Though really, I was Brett and Donna's contemporary as were Wallace, Eugenides, Moody, others seen as coming next. It's funny to hear David Foster Wallace's name on that list of hot new writers, because when The Secret History came out in 92, Wallace, whose first book, The Broom of the System, came out in 87, felt supplanted by Donna. I'm going to read an excerpt from David Lipsky's Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, which is, essentially, an artfully edited interview of Wallace. Lipsky asks Wallace about the tepid reception of his second book, the 1989 collection, Girl with Curious Hair. Wallace's response, quote, I think the envy stuff just so burned me. All the time that I wasn't doing any publishable stuff, 
And I watched other people. You know, like all of a sudden, there was the new Rat Pack. You know, this lady, Donna Tart came, and I read The Secret History, and I thought it was pretty good. But feeling that, oh shit, now me and all these guys are displaced, and that terrible sense of, I had something, and now I don't, and somebody else has got it instead. And it's in 1992 that Wallace begins writing his magnum opus, Infinite Jest. Do you remember that phrase of Wallace's, quote, a blowtorch under your ass? The one Lipsky taught us in episode 11. So Brett and Lesson Zero are the first blowtorch under the ass of David Foster Wallace, prompting him to get moving on the broom of the system. Could Donna and the secret history have been the second blowtorch? Stranger things, as they say. But back to Jonathan Lethem. Fortress is the big book of that year. David Lipsky describes what it means to be the big book. I've always thought of it as the ride, and I think that the first time that I was really aware of the ride was with Wallace's great uh, second novel, Infinite Jest, which was everyone was talking about it, and it seemed as though it were coordinated. You know, every year and a half, every year, the publishers and then the early book reviewers, they seemed to decide to give a book a ride. Like Franzen's The Corrections got the ride, right? And then it was clear that they were giving Portraits of Solitude the ride. It's like uh, they strapped the book <laughs> Weekend of Bernie style behind the gas pedal and said, we cleared the, uh, we cleared, a, it's all green lights, uh, there's no other traffic, just go out there. In episode one, I said that our three Bennington writers are three of the biggest writers of Generation X, none bigger in my mind and that it's up for debate as to whose world we are, at present, living in. James Sanders, architect and co-writer and co-producer with Rick Burns of the eight-part PBS series, New York, a documentary film, makes the case for Jonathan. While I stand second to none in my fascination with, indeed, obsession with uh, Louche, Los Angeles of the 1980s, the setting of Less Than Zero, and although it's not like there aren't overprivileged white kids taking too much drugs and going around in fast cars. Somehow it feels sort of encapsulated in time and place. Whereas Jonathan's novel, The Portraits of Solitude, is a remarkable book about racism and racial tension in, in, you know, in American life. And that, I think, finally is you know, what gives the book its largest resonance, that it's the story of two boys who are trying to live together and be together and be friends, grow up together, really, rely on each other, and all the powerful forces of uh, affection and empathy and engagement that bring them together, and then the terrible powers of, of racial difference and class in the United States that pulls people apart. And I'd say that is a rather potent topic for the modern day. We are all struggling with this in one way or another. And um, except that I would say that it tends to get abstract a lot of the time or political. And I think the power of Jonathan's book is, is very personal. I can see to James that he has a point about the all-white world of L.A. rich kids in Less Than Zero shrinking, the racially mixed or racially conscious world that Jonathan depicts in Fortress expanding. But then I raise a point about Brett, who in the final installment of the Less Than Zero trilogy, American Psycho, predicted the Trump-ruled world with Patrick Bateman. I hadn't, hadn't thought of that, but of course, yeah. Somebody that seems to be a successful Manhattan businessman, but they carry within them all kinds of madness and craziness, unfathomable craziness. Yeah, yeah, what does that sound like? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But we can live in both worlds. I mean, and that's, you know, that's what's beautiful about literature. James is right, of course. We can live in both do live in both. In fact, you could argue that the two are currently colliding. BLM and defund the police and racial reckonings on the one side, MAGA and Proud Boys and crony capitalism on the other. And what of Donna's world? Well, that's the one we don't live in, but wish we did. Again, David Lipsky, who would have been Bennington class of 87 had he not transferred to Brown at the end of his freshman year. What you have, when you have a lot of writers there, is that they're all going to be looking at the same material and they're going to be putting it into the kind of novel that they're going to want to write, which really means the kind of novel that they're living. And so, like, Brett is at Bennington and he's converting it into a Joan Didion novel, into a California novel. 
It really worked well when he did that kind of book where his narrator is at a school like Bennington, and that has made them feel out of place when they go back to Los Angeles. So, less than zero. When he tries to write Bennington as if it is Los Angeles and Rules of Attraction, the equation doesn't work as well when you reverse it. He can't impose that on Bennington. And then there's Jonathan. He's trying to find a place that will let him be an artist, basically. His imposing the portrait of the artist story on Bennington fails. And so he has to find somewhere else that he can cast that, right? And then Donna is trying to be in an Evelyn Waugh novel. She is living inside an Oxford novel. And she imposed that on really recalcitrant material. She imposed that on the Bennington campus. And she actually made that landscape conform to her novelistic wishes. And that is what works. And that is the final version of Bennington. As for David Lipsky. I was there living a certain kind of irony novel, which is I'm at Bennington and I'm extremely uncomfortable because what I know from looking in the jacket photos of the writers are like is they've all gone to schools like Amherst or Harvard, et cetera. And there's no one coming from Bennington. And so I think if I want to be a writer, if I want to join the people who are going to be the writers in the next generation, I can't have Bennington on my about the author. And so the irony novel that I'm living in is that I then go to Brown and, of course, three of the biggest writers from my period and the person who ends up writing the campus novel are people from Bennington. And the big writers coming out of Brown have already come and gone. Donald Antrim, class of 81, Jeffrey Eugenides, class of 82, Rick Moody, class of 83. David just missed them. An irony novel indeed. I don't know if it's ironic or fitting that David, an artist in residence at NYU, teaches an aspiring writer named Caroline Calloway in the fall of 2012. Caroline, though, doesn't want to be at NYU, has loftier collegiate ambitions, ones David sympathizes with since he had them too when he was her age. Caroline. It's really unlikable that I wanted to go to Cambridge, but that's where I wanted to go. I'd already been rejected twice. Everyone else in my life at this time was like, Caroline, you're a sophomore at NYU. Let it go. And Professor Lipsky was like, you can do this. And he literally wrote the recommendation letter that finally got me in. While Caroline's at Cambridge, she writes her American Brideshead Revisited. Only instead of a novel, it's a memoir. And a memoir in the form of a series of Instagram captions. It's the secret history for people who can't slash won't read, basically. The secret history for the post-literary age. And it will make Caroline Instagram famous. A short time later, she'll become real-world infamous. Fails to deliver a manuscript after accepting a gargantuan advance. Grifter rumors. An OnlyFans account. Donna isn't Caroline's sole Bennington influence either. There's something a little bit tawdry and obscene about me in a way that's very Brett Easton Alice. But to return to Fortress of Solitude, Jonathan's masterpiece, and Jonathan's Bennington book. There are two full chapters in Fortress devoted to Bennington, though he calls it something else. He calls it Camden. Jonathan on why he did this. I think, in a way, I was so surprised to find myself fictionalizing it so directly because I tend to this, you know, oblique disguise, you know, where things become allegorized. So there suddenly it was very, it was extraordinarily useful to me to write with a, what felt to me with a very brazen kind of directness about that landscape. And so then that seemed funny to me that I'd end up doing what both Brett and Donna and Jill Eisenstadt had done so long after they'd done it. And I thought this is a way of tipping my cap to say, I'm not pretending to have invented this as a fictional terrain. It was sort of a way, it was a kind of a, Uh, kabuki, humble gesture. Camden is, of course, what Brett calls Bennington in Less Than Zero, but also in every other one of his novels, including Lunar Park. Brett Easton Ellis, the character, goes to Camden, not Bennington. 
Camden is the universe of his imagination, is maybe even synonymous with his imagination. All of his fiction, you could contend, springs from it. Jill Eisenstadt uses Camden as well in From Rockaway. So where's Donna in the early 2000s? In a position similar to Brett's, actually. Her follow-up to The Secret History, The Little Friend, published in 2002, is met with as much disappointment as Brett's follow-up to American Psycho, Glamorama, even if that disappointment is of a quieter, more respectful nature. The Little Friend is two books, really. One is a novel of Southern manners, an autobiographical in feel. It's set in the fictional Alexandria, Mississippi, a sleepy small town, not unlike Grenada, in the 1970s, the decade of Donna's childhood. And it centers on Harriet Dufresne, an odd, imaginative, independent-minded, book-mad, ungirlish 12-year-old girl living with her mother and sister, her father having long since abandoned the family. Sound familiar, listeners? The other book is a whodunit. The novel of Southern Manners is more effective than the whodunit, though both books finally collapse under the weight of sheer, accumulated, atmospheric detail. The Little Friend is the work of a pack rat, of somebody who doesn't know what to throw away, what to keep. The prologue, however, is wonderful. It both hooks and haunts. In it, Harriet's nine-year-old brother Robin is killed on a Mother's Day in the 1960s, his killer unseen, unknown. The prologue, which is the start of the whodunit, is also autobiographical. It's just not from Donna's autobiography. Lisa Howarth, co-founder with husband Richard of Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, became close with Donna in the early 90s, at the time of The Secret History's release. It was at Lisa's house, you might recall, that Donna stayed when James Kaplan was writing the Vanity Fair profile. On Mother's Day, 1966, Lisa's nine-year-old brother, Stevie Johnston, was killed in the woods at the end of their street. His murder is unsolved, same as the murder of Robin in The Little Friend. Donna doesn't warn Lisa what's coming with The Little Friend any more than she warned Claude or Matt or Todd what was coming with The Secret History. Lisa learns of the appropriation when the book is published. Here she is. It was something that shocked me. I'd never had a friend turn on me in such a way, ever. And we were good friends. She took the story of um, the unsolved mystery of my nine-year-old brother who'd been murdered on Mother's Day in 1966 and used that as the premise of her novel. One thing about Donna, we talked about that a lot. I didn't talk about it much with other people. I mean, this is not something that you anybody would want to talk about. But um, she was very interested in that and in all the details. So much of that prologue is so reminiscent of all the things that I told her about what that the day my brother went missing and what was happening in my family at the time. And yeah, that was very powerful. She's, she's a really good writer. And Lisa knows that art is barbarous, not to mention amoral. Still though, adding to Lisa's sense of betrayal, she too is a writer and has been working on a book about her brother's death. Donna, she knew it all and she said, you should write about this. I said, I am. I'm trying to write a book. I got a full-time job and three kids, you know. And I think um, she was just banking on me being too lame to actually get the book done and get it out. And that hurt a little. Lisa's novel is published in 2014, The Terrific Flying Shoes. My book came out years after hers, and that really pissed me off that there were people talking about the fact that I had ripped her off. Donna and Lisa have not spoken since. No surprise. Still on his winning streak, Jonathan becomes the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award in 2005, which is the year he's chosen as Bennington's commencement speaker. Jonathan from his Zelig piece. I'm not sure how much my speech could have meant to the students. I kept it deliberately wry and undeep, told jokes, riffed on the irony of their having invited back a, quote, sophomore on leave. I've never struggled not to weep in public in such a sustained way. 
asked Jonathan why the experience was so overwhelmingly emotional for him. It was a, you know, it was an uncanny moment for me. And, you know, I mean, in retrospect, 2004, 2005, that's kind of my, you know, coronation year, right? You don't see those things clearly until plenty of time passes and, and you realize, well, that was probably when, you know, I just kind of, things were just golden for me. So it didn't strike me even as much as maybe it should have how crazy it was that this place that I'd dismissed, I'd vilified, I'd, I'd never resolved my, my anxieties about, and then I'd, you know, written about in this book, and, but that even they wanted me <laughs> at that moment. It was just an amazing piece of closure for me. Because, of course, you know, it's easy for people to see your successes and think you must have, all your wounds must be healed in life, you know? You still feel them. And I was on the ground again and in the president's embrace and, you know, up there, you know, in a, in a funny sense, it was like a graduation day for me. It was like I went where I had failed to go. There's that line in the final chapter of Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey about readers being able to surmise from the, quote, telltale compression of the pages before them that we are all hastening together to perfect felicity. I don't know if it's perfect felicity that we're hastening together to, listeners, but it is an ending, as you've no doubt deduced from the telltale compression of the minutes in this, our last episode. I'm going to cover Brett, Donna, and Jonathan from 2005 up to the present day in headlines only. In 2010, Jonathan is named to the Roy Disney Chair in Creative Writing at Pomona College, a post held by David Foster Wallace until Wallace's suicide in 2008. The Roy Disney Pavilion at the Buckley School is, you may remember, where Brett bowled over Dominic Gross with his rendition of the Sting theme song, otherwise known as Scott Joplin's The Entertainer, back in 1980. Also in 2010, Brett publishes Imperial Bedrooms, his post-Empire sequel to Less Than Zero. In 2011, Jonathan publishes his essay collection, Ecstasy of Influence. It contains the Zelig piece, the one that delights Brett and horrifies, reportedly, Donna. In 2012, Brett, an early Twitter enthusiast, sends out a 2 a.m. tweet that is utterly incoherent and yet perfectly understandable. Quote, Come over at do, bring coke now. The tweet is, he will later admit, intended as a text and is not meant for his 360,000 Twitter followers, but for his dealer. Oops. In 2013, Donna publishes The Goldfinch. Critical reaction is split. Mashiko Kakatani in the Times effuses, calling it, quote, glorious, symphonic, and Dickensian. James Wood in The New Yorker dismisses calling it, quote, children's literature. But commercial reaction is delirious. It sets up house in the Times bestseller list, staying there for over 30 weeks. Donna dedicates it to Claude Fredericks, who dies that same year. Also in 2013, Brett scripts The Canyons, a softcore noir thriller featuring former child star Lindsay Lohan, current adult star James Dean. In 2014, The Goldfinch wins the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. In 2016, a musical version of American Psycho comes to Broadway. Also in 2016, Patrick Bateman's beau ideal and dream daddy, Donald Trump, is elected president of these United States. And a few years later, it will be revealed in a piece for New York Magazine's website, The Cut, that Trump's daughter Ivanka, when in her 20s, fantasized about Patrick Bateman as played by Christian Bale in American Psycho, the movie. Christian Bale has said that he based his performance of Patrick Bateman on Donald Trump. The queasy incestuous overtones I won't bother going into, at least not here. In 2019, major motion picture versions of both Motherless Brooklyn and The Goldfinch hit multiplexes. In 2020, Brett publishes his first nonfiction collection, White, 
and Jonathan publishes his 12th novel, The Arrest, a return to his genre, subversion of genre roots. Also in 2020, The Secret History becomes the hot new book all over again. During COVID lockdown, when the doors of schools across the nation are bolted shut, a social media phenomenon known as dark academia flowers. In fact, so big does it get that it warrants a piece in the New York Times. Quote, created largely by users 14 to 25 years old, posts tagged with the dark academia moniker have racked up over 18 million views on TikTok. It is a subculture with a heavy emphasis on reading, writing, learning. It's not unusual to see fans posting vintage photos of novelist Donna Tartt, author of The Secret History, Dark Academia's essential text. And now for 2021. At present, Brett is a novelist who no longer really writes novels. He's, and I'm struggling to find the right verb here, doing one as I script this episode. The novel is called The Shards, a post-Empire prequel to Weston Zero. Except it's a novel that isn't on paper, is on a podcast, his podcast. And you can't read it, can only listen to it. Every other week, he delivers a new chapter. This, by the way, is what I meant when, earlier in the episode, I called him a spent cultural force. From Less Than Zero to American Psycho, from roughly 1983 to 1989, is a frenzy of creation. After the frenzy comes oblivion, and yet he's found a way to dramatize oblivion, to dramatize exhaustion and burnout and collapse. There is for him no new work, only the compulsive reworking of old. The wasted pallor on his face, which he had as a young man, as a college kid, and which was a bit of an affectation then, is now earned. A definitive empire figure turned a definitive post-empire figure. And yet, since the start of the pandemic, it seems as if he's possibly engaged in another novel, also not confined to the page one that involves his much younger longtime boyfriend, Todd. Writer and Brett watcher, Gustavo Turner. As many people did, I was following the Barry Stonelli's Twitter account and I noticed that there was a change of tone. And then it, it became apparent that Todd, his partner, had started tweeting from the Barry Stonelli's assistant account. Because of what he was tweeting, there were a lot of people who seemed upset People even started saying, well, is he alive? Is he not? Why is, why is his partner always on the, on the accounts? What happened to Brett? And then, you know, somebody mentioned to me that they knew that somebody who had dinner with him recently, which is actually at the end of uh, American Psycho. That's when you don't know what's happening in Patrick Bateman's mind because somebody said, no, you couldn't have, you couldn't have killed this guy because I just had dinner with him the other day. So when, when people ha are having questions as to, you know, is Brett still there? Why isn't he on Twitter anymore? But then you also get reports of people saying, oh, I just saw him. It's kind of perfect, especially since his partner was uh, a little bit of a character that was made by him too, both in essays he has written over time and in the book White. I think he refers to him as the millennial. So the fact that the millennial now has taken over the account and that nobody has heard in social media terms from Brett is a very Brady Stonelli situation. So Gustavo's saying that the rumor making the rounds is that Brett's boyfriend Todd, who's in effect been turned into a character by Brett, has killed his creator, hijacked his creator's social media platforms. This rumor is false. I've seen Brett with my own two eyes since having that conversation with Gustavo. Yet the rumor contains a kind of truth. Fact, fiction, reality, fantasy. Brett the writer, Brett the person, Brett the persona. These things are jumbled together and inseparable. The work is the life, the life part of the work, all of it a sort of ongoing performance art project. Donna, with her books and with her persona, takes the dead opposite approach. David Lipsky. This is generational. In the same way that Donna's sense about what college could be was so passionate that she could make that into a fantasy that every reader could share. 
she embodied in a way that no writer of the period has embodied what were the aspirations of a writer coming up in the period that she came up. That you would just do your work, you would do it for as long as it takes. And Donna has stuck to that idea of what a writer is. We don't see her, we don't hear from her. Like when she has to come out and promote the book, she's great, she's charming, she's charismatic, and she has retained our interest. But between books, she lives the ideal of what you are supposed to be as a writer. She doesn't opine on stuff. She doesn't tweet. She doesn't exist between books. If Brett is a 21st century Joe Gillis, a broken screenwriter and a fresh corpse narrating his own Hollywood story, and Donna is locked away in a garret in an undisclosed location, scribbling feverishly for a decade until she emerges with a polished jewel of a novel, her prose as flawless as her tailoring, then Jonathan is a working writer in the groves of academe. He's modest and balanced and engaging and sunny and always, always self-effacing, presenting himself alternately as the zealot of the group and the schlepper. And while his books are widely read, several of them celebrated, he's maintained normalcy. He has girlfriends and ex-wives, children, colleagues, companions, office hours. In short, his life is recognizable, accessible. Now, I'd like to end the podcast with valedictories. Brett, Jonathan, and Donna, and their final words on Bennington. We'll start with Brett. Everything about the campus, the people I met, the, the setting itself, my freedom there, it was, um, a, it was a truly blissful time. Yes, there was heartache, and yes, there was a kind of tension, but it was, it was, I loved it overall. I absolutely loved it. It was built for me. Mm-hmm. It was exactly what I was looking for. And I lucked out. Next, Jonathan. It was, I mean, hugely influential on me. And I suspect the same was true of Brett and Donna. The freedom, the chaos, the sense of self-invention and my own sense of rejection, you know. Bennington was, for me, in the end, as formative as it could possibly be. I'll never be done with that place. And now, Donna on Bennington. Well, actually, Todd O'Neill, the quote, real Henry Winter, the closest thing the secret history has to a hero or romantic lead, on Donna and Bennington. As you've, I'm sure, noticed, listeners, Todd takes the hard line on Donna and has taken it ever since I started talking to him back in 2018. She betrayed Claude, he feels, and he can't forgive her for that. In our last formal, i.e. recorded, conversation, though, which happened in late June of this year, there was, for the first time, a glimmer of a softening. Donna must have had an urging to become something that she saw was going to be impossible if she stayed in, in the world that she came from. And that, I think, is true of many, many students at, at, at Bennington. You know, we came to Bennington partly because we were in the process of giving birth to something. We didn't always know what it was, but we didn't want to just become a conventional reproduction of a, of a type. We wanted to create our own individualities. And Donna, you know, really had that. And, she, and as soon as she came to Bennington, I remember when she came, she looked much more conventional and banal and with very short uh, in a very short amount of time she just transmogrified as it were or or translated into a very very different person it was the character that, that you know that she became famous for you know i mean it's easy to to ridicule her for her pretentiousness but i think that uh, that doesn't quite do full justice to her because you have a dream and you want to realize that dream. And just like children play fantasy games in their heads, I suppose young people play fantasy games in their heads and inventing their character. I feel that's what happened to Donna at Bennington. You know, I, I feel like she really wanted and felt that she was someone other than where she ended up by accident of birth and found the, the atmosphere or the, the environment in which she could blossom. No, 
Let's let Donna herself have the last word on Donna and Bennington. In 2013, she did a Q&A with The Guardian. She was asked, when were you happiest? Her answer, at Bennington. Which I think says it all. So let's not say any more. I'm Lily Analik, and thank you for listening to Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. This has been a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz, production coordination by Terrence Malangone, studio coordination by Sean Cherry, Artwork and design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing by Brian Swarth, Josefina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.